What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Inflation still hot, labor still tight, housing firmer than expected, manufacturing doing worse. The markets are taking a bit of a breather today as a result. The real question is, where do we go from here? The options market flashing a major warning sign. Are we heading for Volmageddon 2.0? We'll look at what it is and whether it really matters to the equity markets. And rates are jumping for everything from auto loans to credit cards, just as those balances are hitting a post-pandemic high. How much longer is this sustainable? That's all ahead today. But first, let's start with these markets. Dow's down 132 points right now. And we do have red arrows across the board here. Pretty consistent declines, though, of about half a percent. Some milestones as well. Dow hanging up trying to hang on to 34,000, 12,000 for the NASDAQ. Some huge movers in the cloud space today, tugging the WCLD cloud ETF in two different directions. It's currently down about 2.5%, but look at these moves in Ring Central and Toast. The biggest drags on the back of disappointing earnings. Ring Central's 22% drop, worse since March of 2020. Toast, that was an earnings response as well. Really tough sessions here. Flip side of the story, though, Twilio and Fastly. Twilio up more than 17% right now. Fastly up almost 20%. A Twilio's earnings, revenue, and consumer growth all beat expectations. So again, huge differentiation there. Speaking of some bright spots, take a look at Bitcoin heading back towards 25,000 today, up 3.5%. It's up 15% this week. Why is the risk on trade doing this well, even as the data supports the Fed's higher for longer rate path? For the very latest, let's get straight to Steve Leisman. Steve, what do you think? Well, what you see today, uh, Kelly, is stocks are off their lows, but they're still down after they took a one-two punch from hotter inflation numbers and, a ho- and hawkish Fed speak. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester saying, we're in it to win it, using a little Super Bowl language there regarding the Fed's battle against inflation, and also saying we have more work to do. She says we will need to bring the funds rate above 5% and hold it there for some time. Uh, she also revealed that she supported a 50 basis point rate hike at the last meeting. Meanwhile, the producer price index coming in hotter than expected, suggesting more inflation pressure up the pipeline on the way to the consumer and joining the consumer price index on Tuesday and showing inflation not coming down as fast as the market expected or hoped. Together with strong economic data, it could mean a hope for a spring pause will be off the table for the Federal Reserve. Markets have increasingly been pricing in. You can see here a June rate hike. It's now 49 percent. Add these two columns together for that extra quarter point in June compared to 51 percent for the Fed hiking to that five, five and three eighths or five and one eighth area there, uh, the probability of June hike and 51 percent chance the Fed stops in May. Uh, you can see here that the next screen, if we have that up here, I don't know if we have it yet. Yes, we do. There we go. All that means a stronger forecast for the Federal Reserve for, for, uh, for GDP are in January 23rd. We were forecasting GDP at 0.2 percent after the retail sales number, one and a half percent right there now in terms of where uh, the forecast is for the first quarter of GDP growth. Still below trend, but much closer now. Uh, One other thing is just when you thought you were out of the recessionary woods, New York Fed comes across today and reports strong debt numbers rising to 
uh, the 20-year high in terms of the quarterly increase, mortgage debt, credit card debt, and all sorts of things uh, going up. Uh, and also, Kelly, delinquency rates rising. We're going to talk more about that. Come on over, sure. Steve. Thank you so much. The New York Fed this morning reporting that credit card balances have hit new all-time highs, and home equity loans saw the biggest jump in a decade last quarter, and it couldn't come at a worse time. Check out these numbers from Bankrate.com that show the impact of all the Fed's rate hikes. Uh, 30-year fixed mortgages, 4% last February. Now, as we know, they're almost 7%. Home equity loans, almost 8%. New and used car loans, over 6%. And the biggest hit, credit cards, at nearly 20%. Personal loans higher as well, by the way. For more, let's bring in Greg McBride. He's chief financial analyst at Bankrate.com. Greg, it's great to have you here. Is this all sustainable? Well, I think the big question is, you know, how long can the consumer continue to weather this before we start to see the spending bubble? Of course, the retail sales numbers that came out this week were really, really strong. Uh, delinquencies are ticking up, but they're still at relatively low levels. And I think a lot of that's just going to tie into employment. So, I, I, you know, until we get significant softness in the labor market, I don't think you're going to see a spike in delinquencies. But what is at risk is discretionary spending. Uh, so much of household budgets being poured into necessities and inflation, you know, hasn't yet let up, as Steve noted right. a moment ago. And obviously, Steve, if you, you know, your mortgage is a fixed rate, but your credit card isn't. So all of a sudden we're talking about that rate jumping up every time the Fed hikes. And, yeah, we don't talk about it that much, but these balances just took out their, their pre-pandemic highs. Uh, for sure. And the idea is that it, it's a measure potentially of stress in the economy of the consumer. There is another sort of explanation for some consumers. you got a job. You may, you know, uh, you may be feeling a little better about the prospects in the future. You might take on a little more debt in that context. Sure. Plus, I don't think people appreciate enough. I was just saying, watching yesterday talking to Diana Olick. Mortgage rates are higher, and it's home prices still remain elevated. Seems like don't buy it. But if the choice is the couch in mom and dad's house, right? You know, then you're going to strive for it. So that's one reason why these if mortgages, these mortgage sure. levels are higher, is that people have to they have to have homes and they have home formation. And, and what Diana was saying from the woman's point of view was, and I guess also should be the man's point of view, it's not the marriage, it's the kids. <laughs> The kids that create the housing demand. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, one qu more quick question, Steve. As we talk about the health of the consumer, we always look at the balance sheet. They're said to be in way better shape now, for instance, than we were 15, right. 20 years ago. Is that still the case, or are we seeing signs in the last couple months, especially of that deteriorating? Okay, so there's two differences here, and perhaps Greg can comment on this. You have the lake of debt. That is actually a little bit lower than it was before the pandemic, Okay. Then you have, sorry, delinquencies. That's a little lower than it was before the pandemic. Then you have the flow into delinquencies, those transitioning into 90-day-plus delinquencies. That particular flow is a little bit stronger than it was before the pandemic. Hmm. So we are seeing stress, and especially, by the way, stress among young borrowers. So that's an area that you're going to want to watch out for. Delinquency rates remain sort of below the pandemic level. Transition levels are above. Greg, what would you uh, comment, and where do you see the biggest signs of stress, if, if you see them? Well, I think the trend is really what's the concern. The delinquency is still below pre-pandemic levels, but they're not moving in the direction we like. When we talk about the stress, look at credit card balances, credit card rates, and how many people are carrying balances. They've all increased. So it's not just that the balances have gone up. They've gone up at a time when credit card rates are at a record high, and we're now seeing more and more households carrying those balances. That's, you know, 
uh, a bad combination right there. And Greg, how many of these rates, I mean, are they all going to keep going up in the next couple quarters on Fed rate hikes? Or uh, could some of them, for instance, be more attuned to 10-year treasuries, yields where things might have, uh, have at least until recently fallen somewhat? Those that are going to be most closely tied to the Fed are variable rate debts like credit cards, home equity lines of credit. The mortgage rate's going to be much more based on the outlook for inflation and the economy. We've seen mortgage rates rebound a little bit after pulling back since October because we've had this strength in the labor market and the fact that inflation is not yet letting up like everybody hoped. Greg, the question I have, I don't, I don't know that you can answer this, but have the banks, do you feel, appropriately reserved for potential losses on these credit cards and the, and the mortgages and the notes they hold? Yes, you're seeing that right now. I mean, you know, when, when earnings are flush, they start to put those boost those reserves. A year ago, they were releasing reserves because the economy was, was good and the delinquencies didn't get as bad in the pandemic as they thought. Now it's back to the time where they've got to build those reserves back up. So a lot of those quarterly earnings announcements for banks, a lot of the focus was about how much they were setting aside for reserves. That's not for the delinquencies they're seeing now. It's to reserve against delinquencies they may see later. Yeah, well said. And I, I guess you finally... This paints a picture of a pretty resilient consumer, but it goes back to the income issue that you talked about. If Greg mentioned, there's already some signs of stress building somewhat. It's all it all comes back to whether those the income expectations and uh, job expectations hang in there. Yeah, we might be getting a reprieve in the first quarter for a couple reasons. Um, the first is people just got a raise because many of them switched jobs, so that's that's a plus. You have these big cola payments right from the government for for social security recipients that helped okay so now we're in a race we're in a race between the savings and the balance sheets that people have and inflation if inflation can come down and we do get a good year of disinflation then people's relative nominal earnings will be pretty strong relative to the inflation level if prices keep rising then we're going to have additional stress on the consumer and some of the worst outcomes maybe those you might want to dial in right no i the race image is very apt absolutely guys thank you both steve leesman and greg mcbride we appreciate it now bond yields have been jumping ever since the strong january jobs report and yet risk on appetite continues to swell among investors tech and momentum names are surging to start 2023 apples up 19 percent i don't know if apple really Counts. Airbnb is up 67%. Bitcoin, of course, has soared 50%. Tesla, you name it. Roku. My next guest is on board, though. Maybe not with Roku, but he is buying tech names here. Joining me in studio is Kevin Mon. He's president and CIO at Henian and Walsh Asset Management. Welcome. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, it reminds me of Jim saying, you know, hey, Alphabet should be a pick here as well. And 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 why do you think that tech is doing? Or I don't know if tech is right. Or momentum is doing so well to start the year. And why are you not opposed to to being part of that trade? Well, as you recall, Kelly, my overall outlook for 2023 is that there are better days ahead for the markets, but not necessarily the economy. I do believe the markets have gotten a little ahead of themselves thus far this year, given the rampant run-up that we've seen across markets, particularly in risky asset classes. But if and when the Fed does stop raising interest rates and we know that inflation has truly picked well, then there are better days ahead for the markets. And who should benefit the most? Well, those sectors that were beaten up the most in 2022, like technology and like consumer discretionary. So I guess if this were all the flip side of higher rates, for instance, the way it looked for the start of January, that would make a lot of sense. Yes. What's caught people by surprise is the fact that rates have moved higher now and inflation looks sticky. And we're still seeing uh, risk equities do well. Is that because 
no matter the stickiness, people still say, no, inflation has peaked, and so this rally can be for real. Yeah, I think inflation has peaked, and I think we have hit peak hawkishness, but we haven't yet felt the brunt of the damage to the U.S. economy. But we're seeing signs of distress now to your earlier segment. The New York Fed reported that household debt now hit a two-decade high. The personal savings rate is down to 3% when it was as high as 8.8% back in 2019 prior to the onset of the damn pandemic. So if the consumer starts to spend less, the economy is going to deteriorate further. I believe in all likelihood we still hit a recession during the first half of this year. But that doesn't mean there aren't opportunities in stocks and ways to position your portfolios to take advantage of that type of outlook. Microsoft, Apple, these are names that, you know, I I can understand. Arista uh, is on your list. What others? I mean, kind of round this picture out for us a little bit. What are the kinds of names you're looking for? Sure. I'm looking for quality names, Kelly, with good, strong balance sheets. All three of those names in the technology sector have positive free cash flow in their balance sheets, have a low debt to asset ratio, and also two of the three absolutely have a dividend yield as well. So if I'm looking to position myself for this ultimate recovery in tech, I want want those strong companies that can weather an economic downturn, but also that are the cutting edge of technology. Arista, networking solutions. Microsoft now getting more and more involved in AI. And of course, we know Apple is always an innovator. So those are the three names we like. What about the kind of historical precedent that we don't usually see market bottoms until maybe two-thirds of the way through a recession if you do think one is imminent. Yes. What if we already are in the beginning stages of a recession and we don't even realize that right now? But I do think it's too early to say that the coast is all clear. I do believe that the economy is going to continue to slow further as the consumer now has to pay off all these high credit card balances at much higher rates than when they bought the goods a year or two ago. So position yourselves defensively to get through this slowing of the economy, but don't wait to put money back into the markets once you get the all clear signal. We all know that trying to time the market is an exercise in futility. Sure. It's time in the market that's more important. Right. I, I suppose the question is why Why would you want to be in equities now if we might be heading into the slowdown you described when we know typically the market wouldn't bottom until half or two thirds of the way through? Yes. But we also know that generally the markets start to recover six to nine months prior to the end of a recession. So what if we made the contention that we're already in a recession? We know during the first half of last year, we met the technical definition of a recession, right? Maybe perhaps we're now moving into a double-dip recession. But we don't feel it right now because Americans are still working and they're still spending. But now we're starting to see signs of stress in those areas as well. So how do you get ahead of that? You position your portfolios in areas of the markets that have historically benefited from a slowing economy coupled with persistent inflation. And we think technology could be one of those areas. But don't jump into those high beta names that have high amounts of debt in their balance sheets and also don't have a strong valid management team in place. Look yeah. for the names like Microsoft, Apple, and Arista. Boring tech, not crazy tech. Boring tech, if you will. <laughs> Old tech, not new tech, maybe. <laughs> Kevin, thanks so much. We appreciate pleasure, it. Kevin Mon. Coming up, everyone's talking about Volmageddon. But what exactly is it? And does it matter to the equity market? We'll dig into the latest next. First, though, let's take a look at Sam Bankman-Fried. Live images of him about to arrive at the courthouse in Manhattan. We'll get more details as we bring them to you as we watch him enter that courthouse for his bail modification hearing. The main issue is access to encrypted apps, using them to communicate with those involved in this case. Of course, yesterday we just got more details on his bail. The exchange is back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there any 
anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to the exchange. Options market is flashing a warning sign to investors of all stripes, with J.P. Morgan warning we could be setting up for Volmageddon 2.0. So what's got them worried? The recent trading uptick of risky zero days to expire options or contracts that expire the day they're written. The activity has increased so much that Nomura reports nearly half of the options trading on the S&P are zero DTE. Some on the street even blaming them for the current divergence between stocks and bonds. Doesn't mean these stock rallies are a dangerous mirage. Let's bring in Chris Murphy, co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna and our own Mike Santoli. No pressure, Chris. Uh, you know, how, but first of all, can you just comment on how unusual this is? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, um, had a huge increase in this zero day to expiration uh, type trading and, you know, just the, within a week, a couple day expiration. Now, one thing to keep in mind is um, it's pretty much all opened and closed or bought or sold or the reverse over the course of the day. So there really is no time to build up these massive offside positions. So when I hear about comparisons to Volpocalypse, remember, that took an entire year uh, which was 2017 of just relentless selling of volatility until these positions got so big, both institutional and retail, uh, that it finally unwound. Um, you know, option trades that occur over the course of one day and then expire, that they're basically wiped clean the next day. So, you know, I'm not seeing, um, you know, what some of those comments you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, Would you say, Chris, that you see other signs in options markets or just in general in terms of positioning that point to either you know, worrisome complacency or extended risk taking or anything like that? Well, I mean, look, volatility levels are down um, from where they were last year. They're down from where they were during COVID, but they're still elevated um, compared to long term history. So I wouldn't necessarily call it complacent. You know, we've had a, seen an increase in in skew, which everybody likes to look at as well. But you know, that might just be because people are building up their positions and need to hedge a little bit more. Uh, and those tail options don't come in nearly as quick when the rest of the volatility comes in. So I'm not seeing uh, quite as many of these risky signs um, as maybe some others are. Sure. Mike, what do you think explains the sudden popularity of these types of options? I mean, any tool that is introduced that creates a more targeted ability to, you know, bet on the next move, the next, uh, you know, the next short uh, you know, period of time ahead of us is going to get outsized adoption. I mean, it's just it's the way it is. They introduce leaps, these long-term options. Yeah, sure, they were useful on paper, but they don't create uh, that sort of two-sided activity in the moment. So uh, I think that the, that the market trading community is always going to kind of rush to adopt these things. There's another sense out there that they've been integrated in a lot of kind of quantitative trading models. There's really arbitrage going on uh, below them, a lot of writing of options on an intraday basis, trying to capture 
interest rate moves. It's pretty complex, but I won't deny retail investors have definitely flocked to them, too. It's become popular. It's become a popular talking point. I'm not opposed to the idea that it had perhaps alters the intraday rhythms a little bit. You have dealers that have to hedge exposures if you do get a short market move. But I, I just don't really believe this is the cause of directional market moves. Principally, as Chris was saying, you don't really have time for people to be loaded on one side of the boat. But choppy within a range and ping-ponging between various index levels, that I can see being the case. And then if it gets too stressed in a given day, uh, you know, because of fundamental news, maybe it helps as an accelerant to create some kind of short-term cascade. But I, I don't know exactly how it could build up uh, in a big way. Right, because, Chris, the argument is, you know, uh, people are scratching their heads about why stocks have rallied so furiously, even with bond deals on the rise lately. And this is cited as one explanation that, well, it's all this positioning, it's all this options activity. Do you think there's any element of truth to that? No, I mean, I just think it's happening at the same time. You know, the from that chart you showed a minute ago, uh, the uptick uh, in option volume started right around COVID, you know, mm -hmm. for, for various reasons. Um, but then, you know, volume just, you know, brings in more volume. And the liquidity in the most active um, uh, trading names is, is, um, is the best it's ever been. So you're able to get in and get out. You're able to get a lot of uh, exposure very quickly. You're able to play all these these macro events. So no, I, I don't really think that the increase is related. Now, you might see an increase in call volume as the markets start to rally because uh, investors are chasing that momentum. Um, but but I don't think it's causing it. Once again, it's following, uh, it, but not causing. Sure. And real quickly, Mike, does it though, what, could you kind of put it in the ledger as another sign that maybe there's still more liquidity out there than we thought? I mean, if we're all describing this as retail investors, and, and I heard a lot of this activity going back a couple of years, triple, the triple Qs and the T triple Qs and all the rest of it. So what does that tell you that they're still this popular or, or have they become more institutionalized? I think it's both. Um, I mean, yes, there's certainly a certain level of liquidity. If by liquidity you just mean reliable two-way action. I don't think it's about, you know, people finding themselves with a bunch of money they didn't expect and they're going to put it in options. It really isn't that. I mean, I feel like it's part of the reason people like it is it's really low cost on an absolute dollar basis. So it doesn't take much money for this to actually happen. And I would just say every single time there's been a financial innovation, I go back to before ETFs and <laughs> HFT and VIX futures and options and weekly options. And every time people say, this is the tail wagging the market dog. And it tends not to be the case. It changes the rhythms and the speed. But I just don't think it has uh, directional power uh, to really drive market trends. It's a great point. I am, I'm smiling because it resonates. Guys, thank you both. Really appreciate it today. Michael Santoli, Chris Murphy of Susquehanna. Coming up, Consumer Reports out with its best cars of the year list. Are any of them gasoline powered? You got to stick around to find out. Tesla, by the way, down one and a half percent right now. We'll have more on that story in a moment. And on a day where Paramount missed on the top and bottom lines, we're going to look at the huge impact one of its most popular shows has had on one business. That story ahead with those shares down five percent. And as we head to break, here's the Dow heat map with Disney, Microsoft and Amgen all weighing on the index down 157 right now. Uh, Cisco seeing the biggest gains after that strong earnings guidance. Only six stocks are in the green right now. The exchange is back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. 
at least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. With stocks in the red this hour, I want to draw your attention to the 10-year yield approaching once again about 385. Session highs had us poking up towards 3.9%. Big implications there uh, for mortgage rates in particular and the rest of it. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, President Biden will deliver remarks on the United States' response to those unidentified aerial objects about a half hour from now. Uh, it comes at 2 p.m. Eastern time or thereabouts. This according to the White House. He returned to the Oval Office uh, about an hour ago after a routine physical exam at Walter Reed Hospital near Washington. In Michigan, several cars of a freight train derailed this morning, but there are no injuries, no hazardous materials on board. The EPA is visiting the scene today of a much more serious derailment in Ohio earlier this month. In that town, some people have not been able to get back to their homes. And in Paris, thousands of people again marched against the government's plan to raise the retirement age by two years to 64. It's the fifth day of protests there, and unions are threatening to bring the country to a halt on March 7th if President Macron does not back down. Kelly, back to you. I will see you soon, Tyler. Thank you so much. Coming up, DoorDash shares could move 13% on earnings, according to, yes, near-term options. Applied Materials has only missed on the top and bottom lines three times in the past five years. And The Street expecting Deere's equipment sales to top $11 billion in its first quarter. We'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade on all three in our next edition of Earnings Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard making remarks at this time, saying several factors may combine to make 2023 a disinflationary year. He says continued policy rate increases, so take note of that. He still thinks rate need to, rates need to go up, can help lock in a disinflationary trend during 2023. And he says the disinflationary process has already started. However, inflation remains too high, but it has come down. Fed policy has helped keep market-based measures of inflation expectations relatively low on the economy. Bullard says it's growing faster than thought and employment remains robust. Growth will moderate is his expectation and unemployment will rise. Kelly? Thank you, Steve. We'll keep an eye on the markets. Dow's still down 183. Now it's time for earnings exchange, and today we've got DoorDash, Deer, and Applied Materials. So let's see which one our trader likes. We'll start right now with Applied Materials. Shares are up 20% so far this year, but they did issue weaker-than-expected guidance last quarter. Will this one be a repeat? Christina Partsinevelis is here with that story, while Boris Schlossberg joins us with our trades today, Managing Director of FX Strategy at BK Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, guys. Christina, kick things off. Well, there's a few areas of focus, especially with applied materials and where they are in this inventory correction. Are they going to be a little bit more like ASML and ride it out, or are they going to struggle like LAM research? That's point number one. The second point, too, is the China impact. We have the U.S. export restrictions to China. What will that mean? We know that the Nikkei is reporting that applied materials is moving some of their non-Chinese employees to Singapore. So will that continue to impact it? They're already estimating a $2.5 billion impact to uh, fiscal year 2023. Then 
in. Thirdly, you have customer orders, SK Hynix, um, as well as Samsung actually lowered their CapEx. Will we be hearing from anyone else? Are they going to shed some light on that? And then any cost-cutting efforts. There was a note from Evercore that pointed out that they have increased their headcount, and this is applied materials by at least 40% just over the last two years. So will they be cutting any jobs or anything else within their uh, corporation to, to help those margins? All right, Boris, you say this is absolutely one of the five key semi-stocks to watch, but is, has it gotten too far ahead of itself? I think it has for right now, simply because, um, you know, as you guys were mentioning, the inventory cycle, the thing about AMAT is they don't make semiconductors. They make tools for other companies to make semiconductors. And it's very, very possible for the semiconductor demand to be strong, but not have the new need for capex. In other words, the capacity that they have right now could be enough. And that means the, the cycle for them is going to actually slow down. So it's very possible for the semiconductor industry to be doing well, but AMAT not necessarily doing as well. The stock has really, really arisen over the last couple of months. Um, and I think it may be a little bit ahead of itself. I love the company on a long-term basis, but probably uh, maybe at around 105, 100. So it's probably the kind of a trade here today would be more selling the puts and getting yourself at a better price than just trying to chase it at this point right now. It, it does, Christina, seem odd these stocks are doing so well after we've had all these <laughs> warnings. You know, at the beginning of January, markets still had a different tone. Micron and all the rest of it felt a lot more weighty. And yet, look at the, uh, the names across the space. They've really just taken off. Well, Kelly, is that really about chips or is that just the opportunity to risk on? You're seeing that with even Carvana and names that have just skyrocketed year to date. So with chips, you know, there's a little bit more longevity to uh, their play, the fact that they're going to be the electrification of auto, uh, the fact that the AI and why we saw the run up to NVIDIA. So these are all reasons why this is going to be a long term trend. But I don't know if the short term volatility is really uh, justified thus far. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm at, as you mentioned, down about 2% today. Thank you, guys. Christina, we appreciate it. Boris, stay right there. We'll move on to our next stock, which is Deer. And those shares have backed off their recent highs, but they're still up about 10% the past six months. Will its newest bet on AI be the AI, wow, driverless track. They're doing everything. You're always all over this, Seema. Seema Modi uh, is here with the story. They they're, they have succeeded in kind of painting themselves as, as very tech forward. Absolutely, and that's what investors have been loving about the stock. If you look at a two-year chart, up about 30%, Kelly. And the thesis has been, if you're looking for an agriculture company that is betting big on disruptive technologies, this is the stock you bet on. At the Consumer Electronics Show, recently revealing their exact shot technology that can identify, using AI, identify seeds and spray just the amount of fertilizer needed. So it brings down fertilizer costs for farmers by 60%. So on the call tomorrow, we will want any indication as to how sales are looking for that exact shot technology. Technology. There's been some concern in the market that agriculture equipment prices are peaking. Are farmers being less receptive to paying higher prices for all the equipment they need, tractors, excavators, and drillers and whatnot? That is going to be a big concern or a big topic for CEO John May uh, tomorrow. The stock, yes, outperforming the industrial pack over the past couple of years. But as you pointed out, valuation has also come into play here. Deutsche Bank pointing out that it's trading at a premium to its peers like Agco and CNH Industrial. So they'll need to provide some really positive commentary to get investors enthused again. Yeah, well, I know all about excavators, Boris, from, from reading to my kids at night, you know, more than I ever wanted to know about farm equipment. Would you be a buyer of the stock? Um, I would be. You know why? Um, because the story right now is basically 40% of the Black Sea crop is 
is off market because of the Ukraine conflict. And um, that means farming income really is going to stay strong for at least a couple of more harvest cycles. And that assumes that the Ukraine situation gets resolved sometime this year. If it doesn't, we have this permanent lack of supply, which is going to be very, very bad and require a lot more precision agriculture, which is really where deer plays at this point. That means we're going to have a much higher yield per acre and farmers are going to really turn to their equipment uh, more and more. So to me, this is a very interesting long-term play. The stock is expensive, but not grossly. It's 15 times earnings on the 1% yield. I think it's really a buy long-term here because of all the trends that, uh, that are occurring across the world. If you're betting on the fact that we need to deliver more agriculture per acre for the growing uh, global population, then I think deer's got to be your bet. Can I sort of do a semi-pivot, uh, Boris, I guess, and, and ask about the energy trade in conjunction with this? Are these two different stories here, or do you remain, if you are, bullish on oil, energy, that part of the commodity space as well? No, I, I, I am bullish on well, I, I In other words, you know, we've, we've had, a, of course, you know, a slowdown because of global slowdowns because of China, everything else. But net net, I think the bid in energy remains uh, remains very much strong here, because even if you just have a modest amount of growth in the global economy, we're going to need all of that energy going forward. So, yeah, um, you know, I think we've had massive profit taking, but the underlying businesses for all these um, for all these companies are going to do very well. Um, and I think Deer is certainly going to be very well positioned for this particular trend of precision agriculture. Yeah, yeah, we were just showing there the chart of WTI, and you would have thought, we keep talking about, Boris, how this has been so risk on this year, and look at these, you know, momentum stocks and look at it. Well, WTI is not participating in that. What does that tell you? Well, a lot, there's a lot of supply and demand. You know, we've, we've, maybe we've gotten a lot more efficient in, in um, uh, using demand. That's another thing that I think people are, are underappreciating. But it, it doesn't mean that long-term secular demand is going to go away. That, I think, is pretty much stays there. I mean, you know, we're not, maybe we're not going to see 100, 120 uh, oil, but the oil, I think, stays bid within that 60, 80 range. And I think all the majors are pretty much um, uh, counting for that. And therefore, you know, their, their production plans are, are moderated by that kind of a pricing. But that means that it's still going to be very profitable at those rates. All right. Fair enough. I'll get off uh, the commodities horse here. Uh, Seema, thank you. <laughs> and we'll end with DoorDash, which is more emblematic of that risk on move I was talking about. It's actually surged more than 20 percent this week, although it's still nowhere near the 102 IPO price. We're under 70. We're watching for how they've handled rising labor costs in particular. DoorDash just uh, laid off nearly 6 percent of its staff last quarter, saying those operating expenses grew too fast. They also spent $3.5 billion last year on that European food delivery company, uh, Volt. Boris, DoorDash, should people steer clear? Steer clear, in my opinion. I'll tell you why. I think the fundamentals of the business are very, very problematic. I mean, you have to understand that their basic average ticket is about $30, and their minimum charge is about 4 so that's more than 10% tax on the consumer. I think they had tremendous amount of power during the pandemic when everybody was, was ordering delivery. But I think the consumer is really, it's not that the consumer is going away from the uh, non-cooked meals. Everybody is, I think, still buying meals from the restaurants, but the shift in behavior is going to be much more towards pickup rather than delivery, and that's probably going to hurt them. I really think that DoorDash as a business really can't grow uh, going forward unless technology catches up, unless they can create robots and drones. The the element of delivery here is so expensive on the, on the economic basis per small amount of um, revenue that yeah. each ticket generates. 
it's going to be very, very hard for me to see how this business makes money. Although that has been the case for Uber as well. I and mean, we've all said the best business model for Uber is, is driverless cars. And yet they managed to finally post a quarter that has people feeling better about the stock. Would that change, would that warm you up at all? Yeah. No. no I, am, I, I, I think Uber is, is, is a cash drain as well. It's just, you know, it's just a blip on, uh, on, on the landscape. I'm, I'm not a bull on Uber as well. I think both of those models are very, very difficult to make money in long term. Um, you know, they've really enjoyed great amount of private equity and subsidization by VCs for, for forever, forever. Now that they have to actually become real businesses, it's uh, it's going to be much harder, I think. For, for Are there forward. any stocks that have been part of this little risk on revival that you look at, you know, maybe a Shopify that one's down today, but coming into the, you know, are there any that you look at and say, you know what, yeah. this is this is deserved? No, you know, you mean like as far as having prospects forward? Sure. Yeah, Shopify, I think, is definitely, you know, definitely a, a name that's going to stay with us for quite a long time because they truly add tremendous amount of value. And, uh, you know, they've created very, very great tools for all the uh, retailers. So, yeah, I, I think when you're looking at a lot of these um, names, you have to deconstruct the basic business model and ask yourself, you know, forget the risk on risk off, forget interest rates. Is this a business that you could make money five years from now, 10 years from now? And I think when you're looking at DoorDash, Uber, those are big question marks. Whereas with Shopify, absolutely, this is a, you know, it's, it's, it's a great business that continues to, to generate It's uh, just so ironic. Flow. You're talking, you know, so we have yet DoorDash up 20% in a week and we have Shopify down 16% today. So why is it, Danielle, yesterday as well, a fan of the company kind of longer term, why of all the stocks, this one gets no credit while everything else, they, they take it to the moon? That's the beauty of the markets, you know. It's the short, the short-term flows. You know, we have short squeezes. We have, we have investor enthusiasm. We have all sorts of stuff. But it's a question of, you know, six months from now, twelve months from now, where are they going to be? And I think I want to bet on the horses where I will have more confidence in. All right, very fine, Boris. Thank you so much for all your time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Boris Schlossberg. Still ahead, we're looking at Consumer Reports best cars of the year and EVs top the list. The full reveal coming up next. And during February, CNBC is celebrating black heritage through the stories of some of our teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here is CNBC director Elizabeth Donovan. Often in my career, I have been the first black woman to hold my position, sometimes the only black person. People will question everything you do and ask how you got here, as if not by hard work. When you are successful, you internalize to survive the spaces that were not made for us. My advice, be courageous, be bold, don't diminish your gifts. Today, you may be first, but hopefully tomorrow, you will be one of many. Welcome back. Consumer Reports out with its annual top auto picks, and it's a big year for EVs. Phil LeBeau is here with the full list. And Phil, what spot has the first gasoline-powered car on, I wonder? Well, what you have is 10 vehicles that are picked every year by Consumer Reports, and they're in a range of prices between under 25000 up to 55000 And they say, look, these are the models, according to Consumer Reports, that are the best in these categories. And this year, when you look at the report overall, and we're not going to run down every single model, but seven of the ten are either hybrids or electric vehicles. Why? Consumer Reports says they have greater fuel efficiency. No surprise there. Also, they have better reliability. So what we find is... 
there's less brake problems, the transmissions, less transmission problems. Everything is kind of muted and softened. And plus, when you look at the hybrids and who's producing these hybrids, they generally are from very reliable automakers who have been using this technology for a long time. That's code for saying Toyota. They have four of the 10 vehicles. No surprise, they are the leader in hybrid sales here in the U.S. Overall, basically nine out of 10 vehicles in this country sold are still gasoline powered, internal combustion engine vehicles. But you see EVs are now outselling hybrids, each of them with a little over 5% of the market. Kelly, as you take a look at what we're seeing for the, uh, the automakers and what's expected, keep in mind that auto sales are expected to grow this year by about 9%. That's the expectation. We'll see if the market develops as expected later this year. Can we put that uh, up one more time, Phil, to show the top picks? I mean, this does people wonder, ah, oh, this is why, you know, why feature this? This this is really a sign of the times. You know, I remember when Tesla was very, for the first time was up there, and that was like years ago. Um, this, to me, suggests right. that the EV market, I mean, to make the obvious point, but it really is broadening out. And there are more options out there. The Tesla Model 3 is the uh, EV, one of the EVs that was picked this year, along with the Nissan Leaf. Those are the two EVs that were picked along with five hybrids. We're seeing more options, Kelly. So when you go out to buy an electric vehicle, it used to be, I have Tesla and I got a couple other choices. Increasingly, that is not the case anymore. And what you're going to see is more EVs becoming more popular, more people buying them. And I'm not surprised that this is what we saw from Consumer Reports. So I want to pivot while you're here and just ask quickly. We're getting these breaking headlines yeah. from Tesla. Big recall. We'll have more on it next hour. But the it makes it sound like full self-driving is being recalled. And I mean, what percentage of cars that have it out there? I mean, this sounds like a pretty wide-ranging recall. Three, well, 360,000 have it. Kelly, we're going to say something at, at, the, at the risk of saying the same thing I've been saying for a long time that other people have been saying. Teslas do not drive themselves. There right. is no full self-driving Tesla. It, it has been well documented, despite the claims from Elon Musk. Do they do driver assist where they assist drivers? Yes. But that's what this recall is about. Some of the uh, full self-driving technology is not working as it should, whether it's going through stop signs at intersections, whether it's going into an intersection for a right turn lane only, or not adjusting the speed to the speed limit that's out there on the road. Those are the kinds of things that the company will be fixing with an over-the-air software update. But let's be clear, these vehicles were never 100% self-driving vehicles. There are no vehicles that do that. Right. And, and so this, this is correcting the problems that are in the current full self-driving beta software that is out there. Right, but I, I guess the point is people are using the capabilities in these, you know, they've had all sure. these different betas that they update all the time. And each of those betas has and is making errors. So this recall or this software Correct. update, really, is that putting a stop to usage of this? Or is it simply accelerating no. their, their rollout of the next beta that they claim will fix the existing problems? Well, they're working on the next generation, Kelly. It's not going to, if you've got a Tesla right now and you've got full self-driving beta software, they are not disabling that. What they will be doing is sending an over-the-air software update to correct the problems that have come out in this NHTSA investigation. And with regard to people using it as if the car can completely drive itself, this gets back to the main complaint from the head of the NTSB, Jennifer Hammondy. She has said for a long time, Elon Musk has been marketing this just by its name, full self-driving. 
it implies the vehicle can drive itself. That has long been a complaint of hers and of other safety advocates who have said, look, this is being marketed as the vehicle can drive itself when in fact it can't. And now you have with this investigation a recall to correct the problems that have been found through past accidents. And they make it very clear in this recall, Kelly, full self-driving beta software can cause a crash, whether it's going through a stop sign, whether it's turning or going straight when it should be turning, whatever the instance may be. Yeah. And uh, again, we'll talk more about this next hour, but, um, you know, the problems will keep coming up. If all this is is a software update, it will not fix the underlying issues. It'll get better. Hopefully, each you know each model update will get better. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily stop this from happening. Phil, we'll leave it there for now. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Our Phil Lebeau reporting. Bet. Tesla shares, by the way, have turned lower, but they're down a little less than 1%. Still to come, Western Core. It's been a popular trend since the success of the series Yellowstone. So popular, in fact, that it brings us to today's edition of Out of Stock. Can you guess the item? We're back after this. Welcome back. Shares of Paramount down as much as 8% pre-market after disappointing earnings. They've since rebounded. But there was a bright spot. Paramount Plus added a record nearly 10 million subscribers last quarter. And the wildly popular series Yellowstone might have had something to do with that. In fact, that series has helped make Western wear so popular that Stetson says it's having trouble keeping certain models of cowboy hat on shelves, partly because the COO is wearing one right now. Robert Dundon is here. He is the chief operating officer of Stetson. It's great to see you. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. How much of a demand surge are we talking about? Uh, you know, over the last two years, um, demand for the for Western, it's really it's across Western and what we call the dress crossover category, which which is really what I'm wearing. Um, you know, demand for that has spiked, you know, to, you know, more than two, two to, to three times. So, you know, we, we've really um, had to work very hard to keep up with that that spike in demand during that period. And normally you might say, what a great problem to have. But of course, we were in a pandemic and everyone was having supply chain problems. What were yours like? Yeah, I mean, we make we make everything in uh, in the USA. Uh, so um, we, we experienced different uh, supply chain headaches for us. It was labor related um, and also, you know, just being able to get stock of, uh, of components. But once we were able to um, ramp up production and, and uh, get, you know, round-the-clock shifts going to, to, to manufacture our hats, um, we, we began to, 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 to keep up with, with our demand. But it was definitely a challenge. I'm going to ask you more about the labor uh, part of this in a moment. But to ask kind of an, a dumb question, what are the hats made out of? What are the materials involved there? Uh, it's a proprietary blend of fibers uh, that we use. Um, we make everything from uh, every hat is made um, from from finished raw material uh, that we make into felt, um, which is which is the body of the hat. So, which it kind of goes to my question of like, I'm like, it's not leather. It's not like I can't put my finger on what exactly it is, but it's so iconic. Um, to your point about labor shortages, this is a big question for our, for our audience. Are they still persisting? Is that getting better? And, and what's going on with wages? Yeah, um, our, uh, we, we've gotten in front of, of the labor. I mean, it really takes a long time for us because all of our hats uh, are handmade, um, really by artisans. So it's not something that you can just scale up immediately and rehire and get and, and get up to full capacity. So um, you know, we're 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 certainly seeing um, you know wage increases uh, and and to some extent price increases as as you know as we try to um, deal with increased increasing cost of raw materials. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think we're we're managing it, it very well at this point. And it took us, you know, we get somebody new in, into the into the line. It takes them about six months to, to really get up to speed. Wow. Uh, here, if I lived out west or maybe in Texas, could I wear what you're wearing to a business meeting? Absolutely. I, I, I wear my Stetson. I, you know, I'm in New York City. Um, I, I wear this hat. This hat. You know, you're in New York City. And, and business meeting. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. thinking you're sitting out in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we've got we've got uh, partner businesses and offices really around the world, but um, uh, but but the, the the business is actually run from, uh, from New York City. All right. We'll see if you give any of our guests next hour any ideas. Robert, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Robert Dundon with Setson. Up next on Power Lunch, all things real estate with the one and only Don Peebles joining us in person. I think Tyler Matheson is out there getting ready. No Stetson for him, though. Uh, it's too bad. <laughs> I'll join him on the other side of this break. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. 